issue an assignment to one of the pupils, and they would speak on whatever subject that he assigned them the following week. Brother Oliver would always assign the subject that he felt the pupil could most easily address himself to. Just wanted to give him some experience in standing before that small group of people. Well, some five or six weeks after I began attending that class, Brother Oliver asked me if I would speak on the subject of why I was baptized, and I did, in front of 12 men, first time I ever spoke publicly in my life. Well, when I finished the talk, Brother Oliver asked me if I would repeat that talk in front of the entire congregation. Well, at first I refused because of my lack of experience in public speaking. I suppose it's difficult for people to believe today, but it, there was a time in my life when I was very inhibited. When I was in high school, I couldn't even make announcements to encourage the kids to come to the football or the basketball team that I played on. I couldn't go from room to room. I was that backward and that inhibited. Well, when Brother Oliver asked me to repeat that talk in front of the entire congregation, I just told him that I wasn't capable of doing it. Well, with a little prodding from Brother Oliver, and after I thought it over, I decided that if my story could help but one person, certainly it was my obligation as a Christian to tell it. The Lord informs us that one soul is worth more than all the wealth in this world combined. And for that reason, I began telling people why I left the church that I was brought up in, why I became a New Testament Christian. Now, I'd like to say that I simply read Mark 16 and 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And I merely searched out the nearest congregation of the Church of Christ and submitted to that primary or primal obedience. But that wouldn't be true. For I've known what the Bible, ha Bible has to say pertaining to the necessities of baptism, the essentiality of baptism, for well over 30 years now. These things were first pointed out to me by a Christian friend who I was employed with right up until the time that I gave up my secular work and dedicated myself to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ on a full-time basis. Well, as everybody in this assembly knows, I was brought up a Roman Catholic. I was educated in the parochial school system. I firmly believed that the Catholic religion was a true religion simply on the basis that this is what I had been taught, and I never questioned it. That's what I had been taught all of my life. Well, when you believe something all of your life, if someone tells you that you've been wrong, as my Christian friend in our place of employment did, it's very difficult to accept, and I didn't accept it. In fact, more than anything else, it infuriated me. It angered me. But the one thing it accomplished was it started me to reading the Bible because I wanted to prove to this friend of mine and myself both that the Catholic religion was the true religion. Now, as a result, I read the Bible in such a manner that so many people are guilty of reading it today. That is, instead of conforming myself to what the Bible teaches, I tried desperately to conform the Bible to with what I thought I believed. Well, the more I read, the more I realized I had been wrong. The more I got this feeling of being wrong, the more I suppressed it. Because as I look back, the way of life that I would become accustomed to, such as drinking and gambling and nightclub clubbing and carousing and what have you, was a way of life that I enjoyed. It was the only way of life that I'd ever lived. It was a way of life that I'd pursued for as long as I could remember. And I just didn't want to give these things up. If I can borrow an old phrase, I wanted to have my cake and eat it, too. I believed in God. There's never been a time in my life that I haven't believed in God. I believed that Jesus Christ was God's son. Never been a time in my life when I haven't believed that Jesus Christ was God's son. I wanted to go to heaven. Never been a time in my life when I haven't wanted to go to heaven. But I wanted to go there on my terms instead of the terms of the Christ who died for me. Now, I attempted to alleviate my guilt feelings, my guilty conscience, in a manner that I'm convinced many people, when they learn the truth and just don't want to obey the truth, want to cling to the ways of the world rather than becoming a part of the truth, attempt to alleviate their guilt consciences or their guilt feelings. I used to say to myself, well, now, or think of such passage scriptures, Acts 16 and 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And I thought, well, I believe, so maybe I'll be all right. 
And I knew that Jesus also asked the question in Luke 6 and 46, Why do you say unto me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say or the things that I ask? And not only had he asked me to be baptized, but among other things, he had commanded it. I tried soothing my guilty conscience by thinking of all these sincere people that we have in all these different faiths. And certainly there are sincere people, friends and brethren, in every faith and every philosophy of which you can think tonight. And I thought to myself, now sure, a just God could not and would not send those people to hell. But down deep, I knew that I didn't have to answer for these people. I had to answer only for myself. And I wasn't living the kind of a life that the Lord said we all must for to have any hope of attaining that eternal paradise. I thought of that word sincere, thought of it back then, and thought of it many times since becoming a New Testament Christian. As I've already pointed out, there are all kinds of people in every faith imaginable who are sincere. There are communists who have given their lives for communism by the tens of thousands. You can't question the sincerity of anyone who would give their life for what they believe. There are Buddhists who have given their lives for that particular religion. There are atheists who are sincere. There are agnostics who are sincere. But that, friends and brethren, doesn't mean that one can get to heaven through these particular beliefs. That doesn't mean that just because there are sincere people that embrace these particular beliefs that we ought to embrace them. Jesus said in Matthew 7 and 21, or there's any hope of salvation in these beliefs. Jesus said in Matthew 7 and 21, Not all that say unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but whosoever doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many will say to me on that day, Haven't I preached in your name? Haven't I cast out devils in your name? Haven't I done many wonderful works in your name? Then I will profess unto them to depart from me, ye that worketh iniquity. I never knew you. Now things like this tell me that sincerity directed along the wrong lines might not be enough. True sincerity, it would seem to me then, would be the searching out of the will of our Savior and conforming ourselves to it. When my life went on this way for a period of years, me knowing these things but constantly driving them out of my mind, Constantly convincing myself that going to Mass on Sunday and living a halfway decent life during the week. And there were many times when I guess I didn't live a halfway decent life. I could just share this with you to show that the Lord can change people if we'll give them the opportunity. I was in jail as a young person eight different times. Eight different occasions incarcerated. Came this close to being sent to the state penitentiary in Michigan, Jackson, Michigan. I lived a very rough life. I believed very strongly in the Catholic religion, but I lived a very rough life. And it was very difficult for me to change the lifestyle that I lived and the things in the lifestyle that I pursued. So I, my life went on this way for that period of years, me knowing these things, but constantly driving out of my mind, constantly trying to convince myself that I could get to heaven by just going to church on Sunday and living a halfway decent life during the week. Then one day I got sick. I was bleeding internally. The doctors thought that I might have ulcers. They put me in the hospital and they ran tests for three days. On the third day, my doctor came into my room and informed me that they didn't, hadn't been able to determine what my problem was. And that they, were, they just simply didn't know what the difficulty was, but they, they, they thought that I had ulcers, a possibility of it, but they weren't certain yet. He said they were going to have to run some more tests. Well, I was impatient and I told him so. I told him that I wanted to go home. But he said that I couldn't go home because the symptoms I had were indicative of cancer. And they were going to have to run more tests to find out one way or the other. Well, as long as it takes to say that word cancer, friends and brethren, that's how long it took me to change my priorities in life. I had almost a week to lie in that bed and think. 
And a week under those conditions can be a long, long time. I ask myself, what if I am dying? And certainly people a lot younger than I was have died. Was I ready? Could I stand before God with any hope of salvation? And I knew that I couldn't. Because I knew that Jesus had said in Matthew 10 and 32, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father, which is in heaven. And I had denied him. when I'd gone to Mass on Sunday. And if somebody would have asked me whether I was a Christian or not, I would have answered in the affirmative. And if anybody would have denied that I was a Christian, I suppose those would have been fighting words with me. Friends and brethren, there's a vast, vast difference between going to church on Sunday and living the Christian life the way the Bible teaches Christianity. It's popular to go to church on Sunday. Nobody ridicules or makes fun of anyone that goes to church on Sunday. But try living the Christian life the way the Bible teaches Christianity. Try living the Christian life where you go to worship services three times a week, where you read the Bible daily, where you pray daily where you don't drink alcoholic beverages, where you don't gamble, where you don't carouse around, where you don't do the things that the people of the world do. And you know who will laugh at you the most? You know who will ridicule you the most? You know who will go like this towards you? You know who will call you a religious radical? The very people that go to church every Sunday. Well, I just didn't want my friends of the world to think that I had gone off to the deep end in religion. I didn't want them to call me a fanatic because in the sense that the term is used today, it seems that anyone who has convictions and stands by them is considered to be a fanatic. The term is used that loosely. I wanted to pray, and I couldn't, because I remembered something that I heard or read somewhere that went, if you can't accept the Lord when you're healthy, then at least be man enough to die without him. Now, I don't know if I agree with that philosophy 100%, but I'm going to say this. It makes a strong, strong point. Friends and brethren, there is nothing on the face of this earth any easier to do than to turn to Jesus Christ when one is dying. Some of the most renowned atheists, skeptics, some of the most renowned infidels who have ever graced the face of this earth have turned to Jesus Christ on their deathbeds. It does not take faith to turn to Jesus when one is dying. All it takes is fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of death. Fear of what lies beyond the grave. Just plain fear. Many, many, if not the vast, vast, vast majority of deathbed confessions are not brought about by true conviction, not brought about by true faith, not brought about by true love for the Lord, not brought about because a person wants to or has a desire to change his way of living and to live for the Lord, but brought about simply out of fear, simply out of the fear of dying. Well, I knew in my heart that it was just too late for me to start begging for mercy. After I had rejected the Lord for so many years and rejected the truth for so many years, I had but one hope I felt in my own heart. And that was to walk out of that hospital for the Lord to give me another opportunity to change my way of living. I thought of many things when I was in the hospital. I've thought of many things since becoming a New Testament Christian. I thought of my great-grandfather. Not that I ever knew him, but I thought how he had lived at one time just like we're living tonight. Now, he had possibly pursued the same things in life that I once pursued more avidly than anything else. Good times, friends, popularity, material things, all the things of this world. But today, friends and brethren, our generations don't even know that my great-grandfather and his contemporaries even existed. It doesn't matter one iota tonight to my great-grandfather whether he was the healthiest man who ever lived or whether he was 
the unhealthiest. Doesn't make an iota of difference whether he was the greatest athlete who ever lived or whether he was the most uncoordinated man who ever lived. Doesn't make an iota of difference whether he was the wealthiest man who ever lived or whether he was the poorest pauper. Doesn't make any difference whether he was the most handsome man who ever lived or whether he was the most unattractive. Nothing matters to him tonight except one thing. And that is, did he live a life that was acceptable to Jesus Christ? I knew that one second after I breathed my last breath, and one second after you breathed your last breath, the only thing that would be important to me, and the only thing that would be important to you, is did we live lives that were acceptable to Jesus Christ? I thought of how eternity was once described and to me and described by a Catholic priest in a sermon that he preached. He said, picture a solid rock the size of this earth, if you can, some 8,000 miles in diameter, 24,000 miles in circumference, but 8,000 miles in diameter. In every million years, now think, every million years, a little sparrow would fly, fly by and graze its wing across the top of that rock. When that rock wears away, that's still not eternity. I thought to myself, in eternity and hell, what a terrible price to have to pay because I was ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I was more concerned with what my friends in the world thought of me than I was what the Son of God thought of me. Recalled the time in my place of employment, one of my stages of feeling guilty, I guess, because I had many of them. Went up to my Christian friend and I said, what if this is all a farce? What if the atheists and the agnostics and the skeptics and the unbelievers, what if they're right? What if the Bible is one big lie? What if when we die, we're dead all over, never know another thing? He gave me the answer to that question that I believe every Christian should give when someone puts the question to him. I know his answer left an indelible impression upon my mind. He said, Gordon, for argument's sake, let's assume for just a few moments that these people are right. Let's assume that the Bible is one big lie. Let's assume that death is death in every sense of the word. Well, if that be the case, these people will be just as dead as I will, and I'll never know the difference. But if the Bible is right, and the evidence is absolutely overwhelming that it is, then these people have lost everything. I went back to my machine and I thought to myself, that man as a Christian has everything to gain and nothing to lose. The non-Christian has everything to lose and nothing to gain. If you don't remember another point that I make in this lesson, this story, my brethren at Rainbow Drive don't remember a point that I make Sunday after Sunday in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ here at this particular location. The very best thing that can happen to people who die outside of Christ is the very worst thing that can happen to people who die in a right relationship with Jesus. I submit unto you, if we could get the world to meditate and dwell on that one thought tonight, we would experience a religious revival the likes of which our minds are incapable of comprehending. If we could get every person in this assembly tonight to meditate on that one thought, we would fill these aisles when the invitation was extended. Do people really want to die hoping, because they won't be able to pray, hoping that there is no God? Hoping that death will be death in every sense of the word. Hoping that they'll never know another thing. Friends and brethren, if the unbeliever is right, one thing is for certain. He'll never be able to say, I told you so. And if he's right, he'll never be able to rejoice in his being right. 
For if he's right, he'll never know another thing. If he wins, he still loses. And if the child of God loses, he is no worse off than the unbeliever who wins. Why can't we get our young people to think about that? Why can't we get the people in the world to think about that? Why can't we get our brethren to think about that? Why can't mankind just sit down and ask himself the question, Do I really want to die hoping that that will be the end of everything? That I'll never know another thing? Now it's obvious that I wasn't as sick as I might have been. I'd like to say now that after I got out of that hospital that I literally raced to the nearest congregation of the Lord's Church and was buried with my Lord in baptism for the mission of my sins. But that wouldn't be true. I knew what, the, what I had to do and I wanted to do it. But it seems that Catholicism was so deeply embedded within me, I just couldn't shake it off. I continued to worship at the Guardian Angels Church in Clawson, Michigan, right across the street from the Church of Christ. I needed some courage. It was provided for me by a completely unexpected source. My brother had heard me discuss these things over the years. Had gotten up on a Sunday morning and had his five children all dressed to go to Mass, take them to Mass. Read the Saturday edition of the Royal Oak Tribune, an article that was written by Brother Oliver. They used to run a paid advertisement every Saturday's issue of the Royal Oak Tribune. Clem read that particular article and he said to his wife, he said, Margaret, this is the church that Gordon is always talking about. He said, I'm not getting anything out of the Catholic faith. I'm going to go over there and see what those people have to offer. Three Sundays in a row, I drove to the Guardian Angels Church in Clawson, Michigan, and saw his car in the Church of Christ parking lot. During those three weeks, he called me up a number of times. The Guardian Angels Church was right across the street from the Church of Christ. Many times he called me up for a number of times during those three weeks and said to me, Gordon, it's just like you've always said or like you've been saying for years. These people just want to be Christians the way the Bible teaches Christianity. They don't have any creeds, any catechisms, any church laws, any dogmas, any man-made innovations of any kind. They just simply take the Bible and they want to be exactly what they were in the first century, exactly what they were in biblical times. Why don't you come over? Well, after a while, I finally came over. And I heard many inspiring sermons delivered by our great preacher, Brother R.C. I was tempted to respond to the invitation more than once. Once again, I lacked that courage. Once again, it was provided for me by my brother. On the night of Guyan Woods, great lesson on the essentiality of baptism and a revival, a gospel meeting in Clawson, Michigan, when the invitation was extended, he came down the aisle to obey his Lord. Now, he hadn't thought of this for some 12 years like I had. He hadn't been sick and had the scare that I had had. He simply had heard the truth, and when he heard it, he responded to it. And when he came, I found him. And I look back all of the things that I thought would bother me the most, what people might say and what people might think. Those are the things that bother me the least tonight. Because I know, as certain as I'm standing before this audience of people, that I am a member of the church which I can read about in the New Testament. I know that on September 11, 1963, when I obeyed the precious gospel of my Savior, I appropriated his blood to my life. His blood redeemed me and cleansed me of my sins, and he added me to the church that we read about in the Bible. And I wouldn't trade that, friends and brethren, for all of the wealth, material wealth and popularity and anything else that you could think of known to mankind. That's something that you can't put a price tag on. That's something that comes with being a child of God and only being a child of God. Obeying the gospel and living the Christian life to the best of one's ability. Now, I have many things for which to be grateful. 
I thank God for the many, many brethren that we have in the Lord's Church that are among the greatest people on the face of this earth. I go to many, many places in my media work, have friends all over the brotherhood whose friendship and fellowship I literally cherish. When I had surgery on my left ear last February, I couldn't begin to tell you how many cards and how many letters I received from all over the country. Some congregations had special prayers for the success of that surgery. The greatest people in all of the world sometimes were too prone to think about the brethren who may not be what they should be. When instead of thinking about the literally tens of thousands of New Testament Christians who uplift one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another, who love the Lord and love one another and love the truth. They've been a tremendous encouragement to me down through the years, and I'm so grateful for every brother, every faithful brother and sister in the Lord. I thank God for a family, a wife, a mother, a brother, and a sister-in-law. When they heard the truth, obeyed it much more readily than I did. I thank God that I got sick so that I would have time to put things into proper priorities and weigh the things in this life that were important as opposed to those things that were unimportant. But more than everything else on the face of this earth combined, I thank God for allowing me to get well for giving me but one more opportunity to do something about my life. It is my most fervent prayer that I'll not fail him this time. These, then, are some of the reasons that I obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if I may, as I always do, there's a few more thoughts I'd like to share with you. When I was first converted to New Testament Christianity, I was on fire for the Lord. And I hope and pray I'm still on fire for him. But I think down through the years I've learned a little bit of tact. I sometimes wonder after my conversion if I didn't run more people off, then I would be capable of leading to the Lord because I was so overbearing. I would get people in the corner. I'm a pretty good-sized man. I'd place some employment. Somebody would come by my machine. I'd back them up into the corner, and, boy, I'd talk about a captive audience. I had them, and I'd start preaching to them, and my attitude would be, well, you dumbbell, can't you see how simple and plain this is? I mean, how could anybody miss this? How could anybody misunderstand it? Well, I had a lot of great friends in my place of employment. In fact, the Men who laughed at me and ridiculed me for becoming a New Testament Christian, they saw me for some seven or eight years before becoming a New Testament Christian and saw my life after becoming a New Testament Christian. And naturally, they made some fun of me and laughed at me and ridiculed me. But those that did that the most, the day that I was leaving Tiskin Products to become a full-time gospel preacher, those men had tears in their eyes, were hugging and embracing me. They laughed at me. But down deep, they respected very much what I had done. But anyway, one day, a close friend of mine, as I've already pointed out, they were all close friends, came up to me and said, Gordon, this is the United States of America. And everybody has the right to worship God as they please. And you shouldn't be telling these people in this place of employment, all your friends, how they should worship God. That offends them. You're being offensive to people when you try to tell them that they need to leave the religion that they're a part of. Well, I agreed with him 100%, right down until the last statement that he made, that we shouldn't be telling people to leave the religion that they're a part of and shouldn't be trying to teach people the gospel. But I agreed with them when he said that this is that we live in America and America is a free country and people have the right to worship God as they see fit. Thank God, friends and brethren, for that right. The First Amendment to our Constitution, which states that Congress shall pass no law respecting the establishment of any religious institution or the free exercise thereof, is what makes America the greatest country on the face of this earth. 
The fact that I can preach on television on Sunday morning at 7 o'clock and tell people what I believe in and why I believe in it without any fear of persecution or molestation from our government and the fact that somebody can come on right after me who might be totally in disagree with me, might be in total disagreement with me and tell people what he believes in without any fear of molestation or persecution from the government. The fact that in America we can be what we choose to be short of involving ourselves in any form of insurrection, any attempt to overthrow the government. We can pursue whatever philosophy we choose to pursue. That's what makes America the greatest country on the face of this earth. If people come to Jesus for any other reason except through their own volition, except through their own desire, except through their own free choice, well, they've come to him for the wrong reason anyway. When you have a state religion, you don't convert people. People become a part of the state religion because that's their obligation. That's where the advantages are. And no one can ever be in a right relationship with the Lord through coercion. So thank God that we live in a country where people have the freedom of a choice. In America, we can be what we want to be. But though we can be atheists, though we can be agnostics, though we can be skeptics, though we can be Buddhists, though we can belong to paganism, that doesn't mean that our souls can be saved through those beliefs or through any other ism. We have the God-given and the constitutional right to condemn our souls if we so see fit. In God's great plan, it had to be that way. On that last statement, nobody telling anybody how to worship. The man goes down to the tallest building that we have in the city of Birmingham, gets up in the top story and stands out in the ledge and threatens to jump. What happens? Doesn't just about everybody become concerned? They call the police department, the fire department, priests and ministers, and people race down to this building and they plead with this man, don't jump. Don't destroy this physical body, and that's rightly so. That's the way that it should be. But what I can't understand, what I never have been able to understand is, if that same man is on a one-way street to hell, and a Christian, a person who studied the Word of God, a person who knows what you must do in order to come into a covenant relationship with the Lord, goes up to that man in all humbleness, as conscientiously as he or she knows how, and tries to show that man the errors of his way, ways, that Christian is considered a fanatic. This has been part one of Gordon Smith's conversion story. We invite you to join us again next week for the conclusion. Please feel free to contact us with questions or comments at Rainbow Drive Church of Christ, 2201 Rainbow Drive, Gadsden, Alabama, 35901 or call area code 205-547-3731. A new inventory will be arriving weekly and soon Little Faces Doll Shop will add a new department of collectibles to into Little Faces Doll Shop. For